Thank you, Benji, for, for leading us and for that great time of testimony. Nothing like a testimony of hearing how one come to Christ, right? And uh, we must do some more of that. Okay, open your scriptures, please, to um, chapter 16 of First Corinthians. And we're going to read the first four verses this morning. Chapter 16 of First Corinthians, verses 1 to 4. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so do you also. On the first day of every week, each one of you is to put aside and save as he may prosper, so that no collections be made when I come. When I arrive, whomever you may approve, I will send them with letters to carry your gift to Jerusalem. And if it is fitting for me to go also... They will go with me. May God add a blessing to his word. Since beginning this, I get a rough count, 40 plus sermons over 16 months. We have finally reached the last chapter. And looking back over all the various subjects and topics and themes that we have addressed, some have been a little difficult to take and, and perhaps have made some of you feel a little uncomfortable as we've spoken on marriage and its responsibilities, we've spoken on divorce and immorality and Christian freedom and legalism and what it means and what it look like, looks like to love our fellow brothers and sisters uh, and spiritual gifts and on it goes, and plus the host of other issues we have addressed. But of all the issues we have spoken on thus far, there is probably none as comprehensively applicable in making us feel uncomfortable as the issue of personal giving. As I've said before, this is often one of the reasons I love expositional preaching through the scriptures, book by book, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. You see, because preaching that way safeguards you, And it safeguards me from picking out themes that you may say, hey, here's the pastor on a hobby horse again, his little pet subject. It protects me from that and also protects you. Well, here it is, folks. Chapter 16 comes after chapter 15. So you and I have have to allow the Spirit of God this morning and his word to deal with us all and myself included on this matter. And if there's visitors amongst us, maybe, and if they missed this intro and uh, haven't been here prior, um, they might say, I'm not saying that they would, but they might say, wow, it's not that typical. The pastor is on again about getting more money into the offering bags. Uh, sad to say that can be true of some churches. But once again, praise God for its positive preaching, which allows us to deal with these issues as, as they unfold before us on the scriptures pages. And, and sort of, it prohibits or it gauges, it dictates the terms so that we only approach uh, such subjects when needed. And not when maybe there's a special project going on at the church that needs a whole lot more money. That's what often happens, isn't it? So let's get into the text 
And may we be humble and have contrite hearts as the Lord speak to us on this vital aspect of our worship. Now you might ask, how on earth does Paul get from his lofty teaching of the resurrection of heaven that we actually spent six messages on in the last chapter, how does he get from that to talk about money or this collection? I hope some don't cynically say, well, Paul's a difficult preacher. (laughs) That's not the case. But as you think about the previous theme that we have spent some time on in chapter 15, it's not hard really to make the practical connection here because as we saw in the last verse, Paul had already put forward that because of the supernatural transformation that's going to take place, Magda was speaking about that, you know, life's not all about what we do now, really we're pilgrims and journeying through because eternity is before us. And for the Christian, that's an eternity with the Lord. And for the unbeliever, eternity, dare I say it, in hell. And so as we think about the transformation, the supernatural transformation, where we will have perfect bodies fitted for heaven, and we looked at the natural and the practical response that should be from us, and Paul mentioned us in the last verse of chapter 15, verse 58, we need to be thankful, we need to be steadfast, immovable, and always abounding in the work of the Lord. That's the response. So surely, as we think about that, we think about this future eternal reality, we now on earth need to be laying up treasures in heaven. That would be fair enough, right? As we have in Matthew 6 6 and verse 20. And of course, an obvious way of doing that will certainly involve how we handle our financial resources now. So the connection is clear. It's just a way of responding to God's great love and grace and promises of that eternal reality. And... um, As we look at Paul's instruction to the Corinthian church and ourselves this morning, may he draw out from us a worshipful response, especially in giving. Now, the first um, point I've got up here is the purpose of giving. And we see, I believe, this in verse 1. The historical context of what we have here uh, needs to be understood because Paul seemingly connects with this matter rather abruptly. Seemingly. But Paul is not introducing anything brand new here. He just doesn't roar into something that the Corinthians uh, were completely unaware of. Rather, he's answering questions about it. And that's inferred by 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1. Actually, the whole of the letter to, of 1 Corinthians is answering a series of questions that the that the Corinthians had written to Paul asking him about certain things. And so the Corinthians were aware of this collection and they wanted clarification on it from Paul. So what does Paul do? He writes this letter and he answers the many questions which we have dealt with and including clarification on this matter of given. The collection, which has a definitive in front of it, the collection, not a collection, the collection, as you see in verse 1. 
As we have seen, most of us who go to our home groups, we have just gone through Acts chapter 20 and he writes this whole letter of 1 Corinthians, by the way, from the city of Ephesus when he was there, around about coming up three years. And, um, but he writes it prior visiting the city of Corinth on his third missionary journey. He stayed there for about three months, most likely most of the time in Corinth. Now, if you were asked, so he clarifies all that, and if you were asked this morning, what is the purpose of taking up our offering as we have just done each Sunday, no doubt the answers would be varied. Some might say it goes towards paying the lease of this building. Some might say it's to pay the pastor's stipend. Some would say, well, let's go supporting missionaries plus a number of other financial obligations that we do have. Those answers are all correct. But as we as individuals and a church, are we giving how we should be giving? That's the question. Are we as individuals and a church giving how we should be giving? And so before we look at the specific purposes though, before we look at the specific purposes I believe that Paul has left for us here in our text, We cannot leave out the overall purpose or reason for our giving because there is a big picture, right? There is a big picture. And um, that is, as Christ's followers, we need to glorify and imitate our Lord Jesus. That's our whole purpose for living, so that we might glorify Christ. God is super abundantly generous towards us, folks. None of us would deny that. A verse that kind of wraps that up that we'll be all very familiar with is John 3 and 16. For God so loved the world that he gave, there's the generosity, he gave his only beloved son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. You cannot ignore God's abundant generosity in that ultimate gift. Also, God's generosity is seen in his Son, where it's recorded in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that through his poverty you might be made rich. Folks, Jesus Christ held nothing back but poured out his absolute for all of us at Calvary so that we might be eternally blessed. And so sinners, those, all of us, as sinners born in sin and shapen in iniquity, so sinners by nature and by practice, as the Bible portrays, we need to respond to that and praise the Lord most of you have here this morning. We need to respond to that in repentance and faith toward God. But it doesn't just stop there. Believers also need to keep on responding in the here and now to that as well. We are to imitate our Lord Jesus in his giving principle. Christians, followers of Jesus Christ, need to be generous givers because of God's generosity to us in Jesus Christ. 
that's the overall big picture principle that our giving should follow. And so that would not only include our pockets, it's giving of our lives, it's giving of our time, it's making him a priority, not just putting him in a little box out here and the rest of our lives over here, you know. He comes first. But as we look at our text and others of Paul's writing, uh, we will find out that there are specifics. And this morning I've dropped three specific purposes for our weekly collection or our weekly offering that we have here. And the first one is for saints in need or a collection for the saints as we see in verse 1. Now once again as we go back in the context of our of our, our reading and uh, being good Bible students you will understand that context is king. And um, at this time of Paul's writing poverty of severest nature was very common in the ancient world. It was as it still is in many parts of our world today. As we know from our Acts studies, persecution came upon the early Jewish Christians in Jerusalem. Remember that? And as a result, many Christians scattered to other parts of the world. There was a diaspora, there was a scattering. Hence you have Jewish colonies all over the Middle Eastern area and right up into modern Turkey and over to Greece and Corinth. And so there was a scattering from Jerusalem into these areas, but many stayed in Jerusalem and they gathered as a church. No doubt some motivated, wow, we need to stay here no matter what for the sake of Jesus Christ, our Messiah, that the testimony of, of the Lord may be maintained in Jerusalem. And because of that, Many of them that stayed in Jerusalem suffered as a result. They experienced isolation and hardship that many others would probably have not have done. Simply because of their faith in Messiah. Many were spurned by their Jewish neighbours. Many of them would have been rejected by their families as we heard of something this morning of different religions. When a person becomes a Christian, it's not an unknown thing that of another religion to consider them outcasts. And this is what happened to those early Jewish Christians. No longer they rocked up at work on Monday morning or whenever it was and their employer, who was Jewish, no work for you from now on. That happened. It happened. And on top of all this religious and social persecution, a few years earlier, just to make matters a little bit worse, uh, Paul, uh, Luke records in Acts chapter 11 that there was a severe famine over the then known world. And so no doubt this added to the dire affliction and need of the saints in Jerusalem. And so all of the above conditions that we've mentioned resulted in a real need. Even in spite, you'll remember, of all the believers, you remember reading in Acts 2, how they sold everything and so they, they, they shared with one another, so all had part. Even in spite of that, that did not last indefinitely. It didn't. No dull money. No government assistance, no welfare or pension payments like we have. In other words, the saints, the church at Jerusalem was in desperate need. So what does Paul do? What does the Apostle Paul do? 
By the way, in his early day, before he became a Christian, he added to all this, remember? He was a big-time persecutor of the church. He had many of them put into prison, and no doubt was a result of many of them dying. He wore that for the rest of his life and burned himself out for Jesus Christ as he thought back. So, But what does he do here? After he becomes a Christian, we see for a year or more, as he goes on his missionary journeys, he appeals for money from the churches of Galatia. That is modern Turkey, as we know it today. And Macedonia, and up into Achaia, Macedonia has been in their news with the refugees flowing into Macedonia from Assyria. From Macedonia and down into Achaia, that's Greece, that's where Corinth is. He appeals to these churches that he plants and that have been established on the second and the third missionary journeys, he appeals to these to gather a monetary collection for the saints back in Jerusalem. And he would pass that on, which he did as we read in Acts 24 verse 17. So the collection is for the saints that are in need. Now we don't see too much of that, do we? In our protected little country. We don't see too much of saints in need, not with our welfare system, etc. that we have, even though we complain about how pitiful it is. But it does happen from time to time. There are occasions here and in other countries where you will hear of saints in need. What's our responsibility? Our responsibility is to give. We need to be sensitive to the needs of saints in need. I'll leave that with you. Because secondly, as we, as well as meet the physical need of the saints, we also learn that Paul wanted their giving to cultivate a, a spiritual oneness amongst the believers. That's what he wanted. So there was a, uh, a kind of a, another agenda in this giving as far as Paul was concerned. And why is that? It's because in Paul's day it was very much all about Jews versus Gentiles. And this separation was seen in many ways. Dietary laws for a start, religious ceremonies, as well as even political and commercial activities. The Gentiles did one thing, the Jews did one thing, and never the twain would meet. But when the Jews and the Gentiles were saved, praise the Lord, they were added by the Holy Spirit of God through Jesus Christ to the church of God, right? So the many, or the two, Jews and Gentiles become one. Just like we have this morning here, different ethnic groups from different backgrounds and even different religious backgrounds, one in Jesus Christ, we become one. But, as it was in Paul's day, so it still is in ours, in everyday life there were still some hiccups. Still some hiccups as these new converts stuck to their ethnic and religious traditions rather than to Christ. Remember, even Apostle Peter was hooked up in this. It was all good and everything, but when the pressure came on, and maybe in a weaker moment, you read this in Galatians, the Apostle Peter sort of went over and stuck and clung to his dietary laws and wouldn't eat with the Gentile Christians. So there were still some hiccups. 
So here was a situation where most of the saints in Jerusalem were saved Jews, while the majority of the collection for them was from saved Gentiles. You get the picture? So how did this come about? How did, how did all of a sudden, how did the Gentiles get moved from Jews don't want anything to do us, so we don't want anything to do with it. How did they get from there? Well, Paul reminded the Gentiles that they had an obligation to the Jewish people. Because salvation is of the Jews. John 4.22 tells us that. Jesus was a Jewish Messiah. Ephesians 2.12 reminds us that. Remember, Paul said to the Ephesian believers, by the way, which is up in modern Turkey, remember that you were at at a time separate from Christ. He's speaking to these believers here. These were Gentiles. You were separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope without God in the world. That's where you once were. And again, on this very issue, Paul gets more specific when he speaks by letter to the church at Rome. Written while he was in Corinth, by the way, for that three-month period, on his third missionary journey. And he says this in Romans 15, verse 27. If Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, that is, if Gentiles have have come to share in the Jewish blessings, they ought, this is the Gentiles, they ought also to be of service to them in material blessings. That's what he tells the church of Rome. And this is how these Gentile churches throughout Macedonia, Greece and modern Turkey, this is how they responded. They gave out of love and indebtedness to the people of God, to the people of God who, whom he had blessed through them. So here were just a Jewish nation whom God had used to bless Gentiles. Of course we know that is through the coming of the Messiah. Now, you just imagine how this would have gone down back in Jerusalem amongst the church there, knowing that this awesome love gift came from Gentiles. It would have melted some hearts, I'm pretty sure, right? It would have surely melted some hard hearts. And Christians do have hard hearts, you know. Some of us still do. Surely it would have fostered a oneness, a togetherness that otherwise would have remained a them and us kind of a situation. This is why I love the idea of peoples of God being together. It really grates me when I hear of, even in Adelaide, people sticking together. We have an Indian church here, we have a Greek church here, we have, have an um, uh, Ethiopian church here who call, call themselves Christians and uh, we have a Polynesian church here, Samoan church there and, and uh, an Aboriginal church over here. That, that doesn't follow the pattern of scripture, especially when we can all speak the one language. Okay, have sympathy for when, okay, the language is not understood, but if we all speak English, we're just one church. This is what Paul was trying to foster, Jews and Gentiles. Recently someone asked me how they should go about giving a substantial gift to another brother in the ministry. And the question was asked me, well, what should I do, Jed? Uh, should I give this gift and remain anonymous or what? 
I advised him, forget about that. Give it to him personally. Up front. Don't rob the receiver of the sweet fellowship that your gift will cultivate. Allow the brother and yourself to have and enjoy intimate and deeper bond of love and fellowship in the Lord through the gift that you're going to give him. How true it is. Actions speak louder than words, right? There may be a place, and there is a place at times for anonymous giving, but I believe if done in the right spirit is a tremendous encouragement. It really is when both parties are in on the giving and receiving together. And that's what happened in Jerusalem. You cannot share gifts without sharing in the Greek word kornonia, which means a deeper, more intimate fellowship. It really helps break any barriers that may be there. And thirdly, of course, the primary purpose of giving, as taught in the New Testament, for supporting believers who make up the church is that our first obligation is, in giving above anything else is to support fellow believers, both individually and collectively. In other words, you community church's first responsibility is to invest in itself and its people and its mission in the world before anything else. This will include missionary support. It will include any work of the gospel the church undertakes within these walls in the community. It will include helping out other churches who the leaders discern are in need here or anywhere in the world. It will include all those things. The church is where our primary giving is to land before any other giving is, should be, is considered. Of course, this does not exclude personal giving that is prompted by compassion and mercy like we see being done by the Good Samaritan. You remember that story? It doesn't exclude that. But our first priority is the local church and its ministries and like-minded churches that are in need. That's our first priority in our giving. Over the years... I've heard of and seen churches who have become sidetracked with supporting so-called missions of mercy and faceless mission organisations and parachurch organisations and humanitarian aid organisations. I've seen churches sidetracked in their giving to these things. And this all happened, this all happened at the expense of keeping the home fires burning of their own church and other needs of local churches and the result often, dare I say, was disastrous to that local church. Now it is true that we are, as Paul mentions in Galatians 6.10, that we're to do good to all men. But if you carry on reading in that same verse, this is what it says. And especially, you got that? Especially to the household of faith, which is the church. It's your prerogative to give to any of the above organisations and humanitarian groups. Absolutely, it's your prerogative. But your first priority, my first priority, is to the needs of the ministries and mission and people of the church. Secondly, we go to the practice of giving. 
On the first day of every week, each one of you is to put aside and save as he may prosper so that no collections be made when they come, which verse 2 tells us. And so we see that the first practice for giving is it is to be a regular event. Now, you all know this stuff. You all know it well. But I'm going to go over it again anyway because it did my heart good. It challenged me big time. Really big time. In other words, our giving to the Lord should not be a spasmodic thing. That's what we can learn from this. Kind of thing that, well, when we get round to it, or when we feel the urge, or even we can religiously hide under when the Spirit leads me. I've heard that one a few times. It should not be at the whim of some emotional appeal either by the church or by some other financially challenged group. It shouldn't be just then. Scores of them come across my desk and no doubt scores come across yours as well. You see, the giving Paul describes here was an orderly action conducted on a regular basis. It was also, you see, appropriately positioned for, for when believers met for their time of collective worship, being the first day of the week. You see that? This is when they gather for worship. This is a good text for saying, wow, we don't worship on Saturday. We're the New Covenant people and we're following what the early disciples did. They met and they broke bread and they, and they collected, they gave a collection on the first day of the week. And at this worship service included the giving of money. It was a regular activity in their worship of, on their, on their worship service. Hence, this is why we do this. But I wonder if you see your giving as an act of worship. It should be, right? It should be. We often say that. But I wonder if we see it and treat it as such. Or, or has it... These are kind of the questions that I challenge myself with and I had to repent of. Uh, or has it become a mere obligation? Or a mere religious IOU payment kind of thing of does my bit for the week or for the month or whatever it may be. Is that what it has come? Do you love to give? Do I love to give? What kind of things hinder us in our love to give? Let me give you something here. It may help, it may not. I'm not getting at anyone I was just sort of thinking about this and you see in our technology driven age transferring money from one bank account to another is easy super fast and once locked in hardly crosses your mind right? I really love it honestly I do I've been doing online transfer of money for business purposes for years it's just fantastic it's no hassle you don't have to even go out you're from your office. It's just done and dusted. But back in the age of dinosaurs, I used to painstakingly write out checks when I had to pay my bills. Thou may remember this. I had a bill paying day. I always paid them by the 20th and there I was in my office writing out checks. And then I would either hand deliver them when I went into the town on the bill paying day and I used to quite enjoy doing that. Or ones who were further afield, I would post them 
But you know what? I know. I lost something. I lost something when I went digital. Before there was this personal rapport that I had with the company and the company had with me. Uh, there was a sense of being in touch. There, there, there was certainly a sense of being personally engaged that I have completely lost since going digital. I, I can't argue with that. That's what it is. I, I know it's far easier now and I'm not going to go back to writing checks even if I wanted to. It's a little bit, some of us will remember how it's done, it's a little bit like writing a letter longhand to someone. Many of us probably haven't even done that here, but that's how we used to do it, right? In handwriting, you were more engaged as you write. Many pastors, actually, many pastors I know, all their sermon notes are written longhand. They throw out their computer, they shut their computer off, they write them longhand. Why? So they can be more engaged with the text. I still use a computer. But when you write a letter for a longhand, you, wow, you, you're, you're careful. You, I, I believe you think more before you actually write. It, it takes time. You're careful not to make rash mistakes. There's no delete button here when you start writing a letter, especially with a fountain pen. You're forced to think as you write the address and then you go and put the stamp on the letter and then you have to personally see that it's posted. It all becomes very personally engaging. And once again, I honestly believe you lose a lot of that personal, more intimate engagement in digitally written letters. If so, if so, I may be wrong, but if so, now my, just maybe, just maybe, if that is so, our giving via online transfers can also, maybe, also help foster a mechanical, out of sight, out of mind, easier, faster, all for the sake of expediency kind of engagement. Maybe. Maybe this nurtures a, a kind of, a loose kind of worshipful engagement in what should be a purposeful action of worship. Now, I'm not being critical. I know there's some of you here online gauging and, hey, look, I'm not telling you to stop it or anything like that. I just want to point out that anything, okay, anything, and by the way, even when we put this folded stuff in the bag like I do every Sunday, I'm an old-fashioned guy, even when we put the folders into the bag, it can come as mechanical as we are on digital as well. So I'm not being critical of one against the other. The point I want to make is that anything that might hinder our worship and giving needs be challenged. The point I want to make is that our giving should never be so mechanical, should never be an afterthought or given without any thought whatsoever. It shouldn't be like that. It should be a disciplined action. It needs to be a deliberate, disciplined action where we consciously and worshipfully, what does the scripture say, put aside and then offer it to the Lord. Then folks, then folks, that will cultivate your giving into an act of engaging worship. Because if we're not giving right, if we're not giving right, our worship will not be right either. We also see another principle and practice in that giving 
to the Lord has no exception, for this is what it says, each one of you, you see that? Each one of you is to put aside and save as he may prosper. What this means is that no Christian is exempt from his or her responsibility to give. That's pretty simple. Every believer has been given stewardship of the resources that the Lord has entrusted to them and, they will, and we all will be accountable for that stewardship. Now I know some of us have diddly squat and compared to others, but this is no excuse to exempt oneself from the responsibility of giving to the Lord. The point is here that each one of you, no matter what the circumstances, are to put aside and save as he may prosper or she may prosper. Now the idea here, put aside, the word means, is it carries the idea of laying up or storing up in a special treasury chest for a special need. That's the idea it carries. So this putting aside and saving is an all-inclusive responsibility. The amount of money that is put aside doesn't even come into the equation, by the way. It's the willing, sacrificial heart behind the giving that counts for God. You know, if there ever was a person, if there ever was a person that we might be consider exempt from giving, it would have to be that poor widow woman who went into the temporary te- temple with Jesus and his disciples kind of there watching, and, and there she put in two copper coins worth two cents. Now, if ever there was a person who should have been exempt, we might think, it should have been that woman. She gave all that she had to live on. Out of her poverty, she gave. She never exempted herself. And Jesus didn't exempt her either. He didn't jump up and down and say, oh, no, 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 no. Hey, look, you don't need to do that. You need that to live on. No, no, no. Matter of fact, Jesus used her as an example to his disciples of what sacrificial and worshipful giving really looked like. She did not give out of her surplus, but out of her poverty, all she had to live on. How true it is, folks, that that our generosity to the Lord's work is proven by how much we give when we have little to give, right? It's so easy to exempt ourselves from giving because we say, well, the funds are too low this week or this month or whatever they may be. But here we see it's every believer's worshipful responsibility to put aside and to save for the Lord's work, even if and when it hurts, even going without so others may have. That's what it is. It's interesting to note that the notion of tithing here that you'll be familiar with is not mandated here for this regular collection. We see that it is all down to what? As he may prosper. You see that? As a matter of fact, nowhere in the epistles, nowhere in the epistles is the church instructed to give based on the tithe amount of the Old Testament. You got that? The only instruction as to the amount is made completely optional for each believer by the words, as he may prosper. The tithe tax, by the way, of the Old Testament was a tax that kept Israel's governmental structure in place, just like you have to pay tax to the ADO to keep our governmental structure in place. We have that in Romans chapter 13, verse 6, so you ought to pay your taxes. Israel's free will offerings, which they did have, you remember the free will offerings, to, uh, to build the tabernacle and all those kind of things, these were free will offerings. They were, had nothing to do with the tithe tax. 
They were spontaneously given to the Lord and were never part of the tithing tax system. On the other hand, on the other hand, the basic principle for giving voluntarily in the Old Testament is the same for the New Testament church today. And that basic principle can be summed up in Proverbs 3, verse 9 and 10, and I'll read that to you. Honour the Lord from your wealth and from the first of your produce so that your barns will be filled with plenty and that your vats will overflow with new wine. The general idea here is generously give to the Lord before we skim anything off for our own use and we will be blessed. That's the general idea. The same idea is expressed in 2 Corinthians 9.6 where Paul says in this next book, a letter he writes to them, he says, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Same idea. So what we have in all this is that no percentage of income is expressed, rather it is each believer is to give from his heart as he has prospered. Now is that how I give? Is that how you give? Jesus promised a good return on that kind of giving, you know. Not necessarily in financial gain. You give a dollar and I'll give you two back. No, no. But in spiritual blessings and, and blessings of life, and peace and understanding, direction. Jesus said in Luke chapter 6 and verse 38, Give and it will be given unto you. We, we find it host so hard to trust the Lord in this, don't we? Give and it will be given to you. They will pour into your lap a good measure, pressed down, shaken together and running over, for by your standard of measure it will be measured to you in return. We find it so hard to trust the Lord in that. God loves a cheerful giver, folks. He does. And he is able to make all grace abound to you so that, all, that always, having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance for every good deed. 2 Corinthians 9 verse 8. That's what God is able to do. May I, may you trust in the Lord and out of a greater love for him be generous givers, remembering that the Lord is no man's debtor. Thirdly and finally, we'll wrap it up with this. Protection of our giving through management. These are a couple of administrative verses which may sound rather boring but they're written on the sacred pages of scripture for us to learn from and hence once again this is how we conduct ourselves as a church. In um, other words, our giving needs to be administered. In other words, the funds of the church, the counting and the banking and the sending of money needs to be done by those approved of the church. We just don't hand it out to any willy-nilly. How many times do you hear of treasurers or trustees in churches who have yielded the temptation and skimmed off a portion to themselves before it goes to the bank? How many times? Heaps. You do. Maybe outside our circles more, but it happens. I saw it on TV the night, and it was a Catholic church. A lady was taken to court, but she had ripped the church off for thousands. But we need to protect ourselves. That's why we, every Sunday, I don't know if you know it, 
we have two people out in the back room that count the money. Never just one. And if one person's away, there will always be another one absconded to go in there and do it. That's why we have two people. And that's why we point on another person, a separate person, to do the banking of that money. And that's why we keep duplicate records and copies of what is given and what is banked. That's what the Apostle Paul was careful to put in place here. And hence, it's only wise to follow suit, right? So that's very administrative but very wise and people who try and do things cleverly outside of these boundaries are opening themselves up for some grievous harm. In closing, our given needs to be in response to the greatest of all givers, right? To the one who gave himself for our sins so that he might rescue us from this present evil age according to the will of God, our God and Father. Galatians 1.4. That's the big picture. The one who gave himself. That's what should motivate us to give. Our primary giving to the church is to be regular. And there's no one exempted from this. And we're to give from the heart generously. And we need that giving to be properly administered. Each one must do just as he has purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. May the Lord bless his word uh, to us. Shall we pray? Our Heavenly Father, we just bow in worship again this morning and we give thanks for every thought and meditation of our heart that have been brought to us in song and in testimony and from your word. And so, Lord, we have read this text and we confess it really cuts deep because, Lord, no doubt all of us know we fail in some regard to this. We do not give as cheerfully as we ought. We do not give maybe out of the, as we prosper. But, Lord, we want to follow our Lord Jesus. We want to imitate him and, and for us to imitate him we need to, to give ourselves. That includes our, our money but it includes our lives, it includes our time, it includes uh, to, giving ourselves to one another. Help us in this we pray. Help us to be generous givers because God was generous to us. So Father, Pass us with your blessing and we give thanks for your goodness and mercy to us in the name of our Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ.